Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. It's time for another Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. We've got a panel of veteran political journalists on the show today and lots of politics to discuss. So let's get right to them. Uh, It's Wednesday, which means my partner from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution is AJC political reporter Greg Bluestein, also the author of Flipped. Uh, the book that tells the story of how Georgia turned blue in the presidential and Senate races of 20 and then the runoff in 2021. Greg Bluestein, how are you today? I'm doing great. Just getting back from vacation and I'm a little sore <laughs> from, from some whitewater rafting, <laughs> but I'm doing great. Well, uh, welcome back. Uh, we're glad to have you on the show uh, with us today. Uh, Emma Hurt joins us. She is a reporter for Axios Atlanta. And Emma, in a couple minutes after we've introduced everybody, we're going to turn immediately to a story you just dropped on Axios Atlanta this morning, your interview with Herschel Walker. I can already see Bluestein turning green with envy that you got a chance to talk to him when nobody at the AJC seems to be able to do that. Emma, how are you? I'm good, Bill. Thanks for having me. I'm also still recovering from the weekend, but mine is a little more emotional. I officiated my friend's wedding last weekend, and it was a lot, oh. but it was really, really oh. special. How, oh, how yeah. are you, so are, are you an ordained minister of some of some? Uh, <laughs> I am indeed. Thank you for asking. Uh, I have documents <laughs> and everything. It, I, it took a whole 30 seconds to do online, so uh, <laughs> blessings be upon all of you. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's very, that's wonderful. Uh, that's we'll just call you Reverend Hurt for the rest Thank of the show. Thank you so much. Today. That would be wonderful. <laughs> Chuck Chuck Williams. Uh, not only is Chuck Williams a veteran reporter in Columbus, Georgia, where he now works for WRBL, his long years as a print reporter down there. He's a legendary reporter in Columbus, Georgia. Chuck, that means you're getting old. It does. Man, I've had a boring weekend. I haven't been whitewater rafting, and I haven't buried anybody, so I don't know what I'm doing down here. Uh, It's good to be here, Bill. Thanks for joining us. And Raul Bali joins us. He's the politics reporter at WABE, and he, too, has covered politics in the state of Georgia from for various organizations for many, many years. Raul, you having fun watching this election season unfold? It, it is, you know, finally getting out of day in, day out of the legislature um, and, and getting out, you know, going to, you know, county political meetings. And that's fun to do. And, and I'm recovering from um, hosting political trivia last night. And uh, that was fun. So that, that, oh. that's my cross this morning. So OK. All right. Well, thanks for being here. All right. Uh, let's get right to it, uh, Emma, uh, and bring everybody else in. So you were down in LaGrange, and you had a chance to talk to Herschel Walker. And as we all know, he has done very few um, interviews um, outside of with conservative media, uh, Fox News uh, particularly. Uh, And yet you got a chance to talk to him. And uh, I think it's pretty clear 
that the headline to your story is a quote that he gave you, I assume in response to the question of why he's not doing more interviews with more media, in which he said, I'm not going to talk, I'm quoting directly, I'm not going to talk to anyone I don't want to talk to. That's one thing people don't get about me. I don't dance and sing for nobody. Uh, Emma, uh, you're welcome to comment on that and the other things that you found interesting in what Herschel Walker told you in your conversation. Yeah, I mean, this story, I worked on this with my colleague, Elena Treen, and it's kind of zooming out and looking at the other Republican Senate candidates in the country and how Walker is really standing apart. We call him a unicorn in the headline. But, you know, that's one example of this, what he said about not talking to people he doesn't want to talk to. It's an example of how his name ID is unparalleled without having to run a single political ad. And polls show him in the Republican primary up ahead. And it shows him navigating this uh, dynamic that others are struggling with between President Trump on one hand and, you know, the kind of Republican establishment, Mitch McConnell embodying that on the other. Uh, Walker's one of a few, one of two incumbents, non-incumbents, excuse me, in the country who has both of their endorsements. But at the same time, you know, he's unafraid to say, yeah, I'm here worrying about the people of Georgia. I'm not actually worried about President Trump. I'm not worried about Mitch McConnell. Part of that is also related to his relationship with President Trump that we know about very well. They've been friends for a long time, and it allows Walker to kind of create some daylight with President Trump in a way that other candidates don't seem to be doing, saying things like, you know, I don't care about the 2020 election. Let's talk about the future. And um, and then the other thing that's setting him apart is the fact that despite all of the reporting that's been done about, you know, business deals that have fallen through, um, domestic abuse allegations, some of which he's owned, some of which he has rejected. Um, he's still leading in the polls by a lot. And, you know, we have Eric Greitens, a, a Senate candidate in Missouri, who's struggling after domestic abuse allegations. So it's an example of how Walker is really has this unique unicorn-like path right now, the big qualifier here is, of course, people are still worried about um, whether that will continue in a general election if you were to win the primary. Uh, Greg, there were lots of things that I thought about when I read uh, Emma's story. One of them was um, a candidate who says, I talk to who I want to talk to and not to people I don't want to talk to. It's one thing to talk about the media that way, but you are eventually, if you're elected, going to have constituents. And I don't think it's an attitude (laughs) that you want to bring to your uh, Senate office should you win it. (laughs) Yeah, and I think you you might see that approach change a little bit in the general election. Um, But look, I mean... Uh, you know, we're among the outlets that have given him very tough coverage, investigative stories that they don't like uh, at all. They made it very clear to us they don't like the way that we're looking into his background and his and, and, and his business practices, his history of violent and erratic behavior, um, mental illness questions still still involve uh, how he's handling that. Um, he's going to have to answer those questions, you know, at one point or another. He's going to have to have a full accounting. Um, and if it's if, if it's not with media outlets, it's going to be with um, with general voters, and it's going to be on the campaign trail with against Raphael Warnock if he is indeed um, the Republican nominee. But you know, one thing that Emma was was getting at with with um, his relationship with Donald Trump, of the eight candidates that Donald Trump has endorsed, he's the only one who doesn't need Donald Trump's endorsement. I mean, he's, he'll certainly take it, he'll certainly um, you know embrace it, but he has the name recognition in Georgia. 
so many people who have grown up, even if they never saw him play, hearing his name, he didn't have to run any TV ads <laughs> to have that high visibility. He already had it. And so he enjoys that, that huge advantage, um, and as well as not just Donald Trump's endorsement, but also the Mitch McConnell. So he's, he's been able to bridge this rare gap. Um, between the establishment mainstream wing of the Republican Party and the Donald Trump wing. And he's done it pretty effortlessly so far. He's done it without having to, uh, to, to kind of bend over backwards or to try to appease any one constituency because he's, he, he goes back with Donald Trump 40 years. The most interesting Raul? thing, one of the most interesting things, so I went to the Walton County GOP meeting last week and, and talked to voters about Herschel Walker. Everything we just talked about, Herschel Walker, there are some people, some of the, you know, these hardcore, these, these rank and file Republicans say, this is the reason Herschel can beat Raphael Warnock, because of name recognition. Everybody knows him. And then there were other voters there who were like, he's not debating. He's not come, you know, I've not seen him out on the campaign trail. And that's the reason he can't beat Warnock. So there's even a split among rank and file Republicans of Herschel Walker's candidacy and ability to win in November. And I'll just add to that yep. point, Roel, at, at this LaGrange event, there was a really interesting uh, moment with a Heard County Republican official who showed up to ask him, excuse me, sir, why aren't you participating in the primary debate? And he pushed back and she pushed back again. And his response was basically, you know, those guys aren't polling high enough for me to show up. Me showing up would just promote them. And they're not putting in the work, he says. Um, they would say, of course, they are. But, you know, she said, I wasn't happy with that response. He needs to be answerable to the voters. But at the same time, talking to Walker supporters at that event, they don't seem to care. They're like, I love Herschel. I, um, I, he doesn't need to debate. I know him. And, uh, and that's that. Uh, Chuck, weigh in. You know, Walker had an event here in Columbus six, five, six weeks ago. It was <clears throat> fundraiser. Uh, we tried to get access to him. We could not get any access to him to talk to him. And he kind of came in and came out. But it's interesting talking to some people that were at the event. It's a combination of politics and Georgia football. Because there were people that were clearly going there because he's Herschel. He's number 34. He's a legend. He's the greatest of all time. And they wanted their picture with Herschel Walker. UGA star. And, but there's also the political side of this. You know, the people that were in Columbus who were there were part of our political donor class. I mean, they're the people that could afford the $5,000 to, to have their name on an invitation. So, it, you know, I'm like him. I want to see what happens when this turns around and goes into a general. Because right now, he... He, he has he has a path that is, you know, certainly due to his name recognition. Yeah. Greg, um, so let's talk a little bit about what Emma said. New York Times had a reporter uh, covering that event in LaGrange, too. And, and they reported on exactly what Emma just told us, which was that, you know, there was a Republican uh, Party person down there who said, why aren't you debating? You really need to practice. Um, and I think that's a fair point, Greg. Um, eventually, assuming he is going to win the nomination, he's going to come up against Raphael Warnock, you know, a pulpit preacher who really knows uh, how to make spontaneous comments. Um, 
and, and without any practice in debates, uh, it's going to be a little tricky for him to navigate, at least when he, in, in his initial debate, we, who, who knows how many he might end up uh, agreeing to have. I mean, look, even debates aside, as, as sort of sheltered, insulated that his campaign managers want his campaign to be, as, as closely protected as he's been as a candidate, he's still made a number of blunders, um, gaffes, uh, misstatements, mistruths, all sorts of things that we've reported on extensively over, over the last few months. Um, you know, and that, that's beyond even the debate, you know, the debate realm. Look, as, as a reporter, as a citizen of Georgia, of course I'd want him to debate, but, you know, putting on like your campaign strategist hat, it doesn't, I, I understand why they're not debating. He's at 60s, even 70s in some polls. His internals show him two thirds of the vote. Um, you know, they feel like there's no reason to give his, his opponents, his Republican primary opponents, any oxygen, any more fuel uh, to what would be a big, huge media spectacle, but would have very little impact in their view on the overall outcome of the race. Only, you know, as, as one of our friends, Martha Zoller, said in a story I wrote a couple weeks ago, he has nowhere to go but down. So, so why, why, why punch at these other candidates? You have not heard him say their names uh, even once in his campaign, hardly his campaign aides hardly say his opponent's names. At the same time, you know there are some signs that they're trying to rev up. There's some outside groups that are associated with them that have rumbled about spending money for Gary Black and for Lathan Sandler. But the truth is, we haven't seen any any significant ad spending yet, and we're we're about a month away from the primary. Time is running short if they want to make any dent in this media universe right now because it costs millions of dollars to get even a small bump in the polls right now. Greg, um, one quick question before we move on. Um, Gary Black is the candidate, the current ag commissioner, who comes closest to Walker in the polling, but but closer means he's within f- maybe 40, 50 points of Walker, whereas the others are far below that. Is there anything at this point which suggests that that Republican Senate race somehow could end in a runoff. I mean, you know, could there be some electric, uh, dramatic event that could drive down Walker's numbers? But at this point, it looks like uh, he's a presumptive winner without a runoff, right? Yeah, yeah, it looks like that. That, that You know, again, I, I kind of take my cues from the candidates, and if the candidates aren't pushing back, if, if Herschel Walker isn't mentioning his opponent's names, then you, you, you know he's not worried about them. Look, and there's a decent chance that it's not Gary Black in the number two spot. Um, it, it could be Latham Sadler. He has, he has more cash on hand. He's, he's gotten more uh-huh. um, traction, but uh, he's, he, he is still pulling well outside a runoff spot with Herschel Walker well above 50%. And the last Emma? thing I'll just say about what's different about Walker right now, and again speaks to all these things we've talked about that give him this status automatically. He he's not really talking about Biden or you know the Democrats. His message is a little bit more like I'm here to bring the Democrats and Republicans together. You know, just because you're a Republican doesn't mean you're right. Just because you're a Democrat doesn't mean you're wrong. And this in this polarized world is a very different message than we tend to hear from Republicans, even in a primary, um, because. I mean, saying, of course, that very well might change once he gets into a general. But for now, it's another example of why he's he's different. Okay, um, let's move on. Uh, I was struck yesterday, Chuck, by a news release that came out from the governor's office uh, announcing that Governor Kemp has joined what is being called the American Governor's Border Strike Task Force. 
Governor Brian P. Kemp announced today that he's joined the American Governor's Border Strike Task Force. In the absence of federal leadership, states are partnering together to create the uh, task force to disrupt and dismantle transnational criminal organizations by increasing collaboration, improving intelligence, investing in analysis, combating human smuggling, and stopping drug flow in our states. Of course, it's a slap, Chuck at uh, President Biden, especially in uh, he's involved. He's particularly vulnerable right now because of his decision to roll back Title 42 and allow uh, people applying for refugee status to enter the country. Um, But what I don't see in this (laughs) news release is much detail on what exactly this task force is is going to do. So it's hard for me not to read it pretty clearly as a political document, Chuck. I think immigration is a political issue, and it's, I mean, we're not on the border here in Georgia, obviously, unless you consider the border of Alabama, but, you know, you look at what this says, and this is targeted strictly to primary voters, and I think Governor Kemp, right now, if you believe the polling, is inching to the 50% mark. He's trying to get out of the May 24th election without a runoff. I mean, that, I mean, I know they're saying don't get complacent and all that, but I mean, I think what a lot of what he's doing when it comes to immigration and border politics has as much to do with not having to wake up on the 25th and campaign against David Perdue as much as it is to wake up on the 25th and start the campaign against, or refine the campaign against Stacey Abrams. It's obviously started. So, to me, that's what this is about. Raul? And, and, and that's what we're noticing on the campaign trail is, is David Perdue is trying to find these line of attacks with, uh, to go against Governor Kemp and Governor Kemp trying to close some of these doors. You, you, you know, we've seen Buckhead Sid Hood come up. You've seen Rivian come up. And that's what some of these things look like to me is Governor Kemp trying to shore up any kind of issue on the right wing that he could be attacked by Candace Taylor or by David Perdue. Yeah, Bill, he's trying to he's trying to slam the door shut on any sort of uh, chance that, that David Perdue reaches a runoff. If you think about all of Governor Kemp's campaign promises. One of them, maybe the biggest unchecked boxes, involves illegal immigration. He famously promised to pursue illegal immigration himself in his pickup truck uh, when he was elected back in 2018. And some conservatives say he hasn't done enough. So, so this is something that he can point to on the campaign trail. I'm sure when he's in South Georgia today, he'll be pointing to this um, because you look. It, it, this is sort of a um, you know a, a, a coalition of Republican governors who say this will improve intelligence, that this will lead to more investments in analysis, combat human smuggling. We don't know what really this, this will have any effect at all, but it's something that he can say that he's doing to combat illegal immigration because when it comes to the legislature, there hasn't been any big sweeping um, piece of legislation like we saw with abortion, like we saw with guns over the past four years. And I mean, it's just an example also of the power of the incumbency, right? Here, Governor Kemp can just send out this official press release and slam the door. As Greg said, it's um, it's a tough thing for anyone to challenge um, an incumbent for this reason. You know, Bill, to Emma's point, we saw the power of the incumbency play out here in Columbus on Monday. Governor Kemp showed up here and signed the military tax 
military pension tax exemption um, uh, legislation. And it was, unlike some of the bill signings across the state, and the one in Douglasville on the so-called constitutional carry comes immediately to mind, this was a bipartisan event. You had Sanford Bishop, you had Ed Harbison, you had Calvin Smyrie. And, you know, in this bill that and Richard Smith, the House Rules Committee chairman, is the one who championed it. And this was a campaign promise. You had military folks, you had the National Infantry Museum and everything. But this was a bill that Sanford Bishop, a port of similar bill, first introduced in the General Assembly in 1977. It's been hanging around that long, and, and Sanford was like, I'm over the moon that he signed this. I mean, he could... He was praising the governor for for making this happen. So that is the power of the incumbency, and he is using it. He is using it as a sword right now. Um, you know, uh, uh, Greg, you wrote a piece uh, that I just want to talk about for a minute, in which you you talk about some of the themes we've been discussing about Kemp right now, trying to close the door on David Perdue, but not get overconfident uh, as he does that. And one of the things that's been fascinating to watch about Kemp is that while he's remained silent on Donald Trump's uh, 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 attacks on him, he's, he's maintained his poise, not gone there. He's been pretty aggressive, the campaign has, in going after Purdue in, in some instances. But I was, I was struck by the fact that one of the people uh, you talked to uh, in, in this, for this story was somebody who said they complimented Kemp on back in 2018 for how calm he was, how centered he was, how self-assured he seemed in running his campaign. And I'm wondering if that's the guy you're seeing, and then Raul, you've been out there on the trail too, if that's the guy you're seeing uh, in the campaign right now, that kind of poise, that confidence, what's his demeanor on the campaign trail? Yeah, he's, he's trying to be measured. Um, he's trying not to let the lead in the polls get to his head clearly because it is getting to the heads of some people outside his, his sphere. You know, there are some Kemp supporters who are getting very confident right now. He's at, you know, he's above 50% in several recent polls. The AJC has a poll coming out next week, so I'm really curious to see what that shows. Um, but among Republican primary voters, he's in a very, very good spot. Uh, but he knows better than anyone else <laughs> what it's like um, to to be so close and miss because Casey Cagle was in the 40s and, and early, high 30s. I can't remember exactly what it was, but um, he was polling in the high 40s a few weeks before the runoff. Couldn't make it an outright victory and, of course, ends up losing to Brian Kemp um, with that with that Donald Trump back challenge. Um, and so he knows what, what, what it's like to go up against a, a Trump-backed conservative um, who's, who's nipping at his heels. Um, at the same time, you know, I've, I've rarely seen him lose his composure. The one incident that I've seen in, in the last few weeks has been that video that we led to Jolt with a few weeks ago um, at Fulton County GOP when, you know, people were yelling liar and, and, and special session at him. And he didn't, you know, blow up or anything like that, but you, he could see him. He got a little spicy. Um, in, in his response, uh, <laughs> a response we've seen over and over again, but still a response he gave to that group. Raul? Uh, the, way I, the way I would describe it is I would say Governor Kemp is a little more comfortable than when David Perdue first announced. But they're trying to keep their edge. They're trying to keep that edge and, and, and 
you know, whenever something I, I was getting text messages I in the middle of David Perdue events, you know, so they've still got that edge. As for what's happening on the campaign trail, I want to go back to the Trump rally a couple of weeks ago at Commerce. And, and my focus that day was just talking to voters. And I did talk to a number of Trump voters who said, I love Donald Trump. I'm going to support many of his candidates, but I'm happy with Brian Kemp. I'm happy with what he's done. So the Trump endorsement is going to bring, you know, David proved to plenty of voters, but I don't think it's going to bring every Trump voter because there are Trump voters and rank and file Republicans who are happy with the work the governor has done. All right, uh, Emma, one last word before we take a break. Yeah, I just want to remember, I think uh, that Kemp told me and Greg this once at a Dahlonega event, there's two ways to run unopposed and scared. That was his yeah. message, same spirit. But to Raul's point, um, I mean, I met a voter who believed the election was stolen in 2020, did not vote in the Senate runoff because of it, but is voting for Kemp and Raffensperger. So, and, and wants Trump to run in 2024. So I just, I do think there is this, this uh, nuance about the Trump endorsement that, that we need to pay attention to. All right. Um, thank you for a great start to the show. We got to get to our first break. We'll be back in a minute with more on Political Rewind. Welcome back to Political Rewind. We're joined by AJC political reporter Greg Bluestein, Emma Hurt of Axios Atlanta, Raul Bali, WABE politics reporter, and Chuck Williams, veteran reporter at WRBL in Columbus. Um, before we go back to our conversation, let me quickly say today's uh, newsletter day for Political Rewind. If you're not a subscriber, you can join up right now. Just go to gpb.org slash newsletters. Among the items about local and state politics that will be in this newsletter that I'm finishing up right now um, is, an, is um, a, a reference uh, to a, an essay written in today's New York Times by a 16, 17-year-old junior in a Burbank high school who has probably written one of the most mature, intelligent essays about the book-banning controversies that um, have been uh, uh, rampant across the country and, of course, in Georgia this year as well. His take on what we really ought to be discussing when we look at book bans is, I think, extraordinary, and I hope you'll subscribe to the newsletter and read more about it there, among the uh, other items that uh, we're putting out today. Okay, uh, let's get back to the conversation. Uh, Greg Bluestein, uh, the federal judge who uh, said that CDC uh, acted inappropriately, illegally, in banning uh, uh, in, in demanding that airlines ban masks, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, require masks, uh, led to people dropping masks everywhere. The airlines quickly, Delta included, uh, dropped their mask mandate. MARTA dropped its mask mandate. People are tearing off their masks, some joyfully, others trepidatiously, and others are clinging to their masks, saying we're not ready to uh, give this up now. So, but let's put this in a, in a political uh, context for a few minutes, Greg. We know that Brian Kemp was um, 
took great pride and is now running ads on how he kept Georgia open, that he did not um, uh, close things down, close businesses down in the same way that other governors in other states were. One of his ads attacked Stacey Abrams, claiming that if we'd followed, she'd been governor and we'd followed her advice, the state would have been crippled economically. Talk a little bit about um, COVID masks and how they might continue to play in this election cycle. Yeah, the governor has, has telegraphed very, very strongly that he intends to make the decision that he made two years ago today, which was uh, to announce the open, the reopening of close contact businesses like, like nail salons, like barbershops, like tattoo parlors. Um, that was the beginning of an aggressive reopening of, of the Georgia economy, one that got a backlash, not just from Democrats and public health experts, but even from Donald Trump, if we all, as we all remember um, from, from two years ago. He intends to make that a, a big part of his economic argument that he made, the, uh, in his view, the bold decision to reopen the economy at a time when very few other governors, Republican or Democrats, were willing to take that step. And, and that in, in his narrative, that it paid off, that it paid off with low jobless rates, with, with a strong economy, with a record budget, um, with all the things that we're seeing in the, in the state budget, with all those goodies that we're seeing today, um, that it paid off with that. Of course, Democrats are going to point and, and will continue to point at Georgia's death toll, the, uh, of, of Georgia's um, uh, higher than, than the national average uh, coronavirus rates and of uh, just confusion. You, you just mentioned how, how a lot of uh, places, uh, tr- public transportation agencies and others, dropped their mask mandates. Well, we had a patchwork for a very long time in Georgia of some cities with mask mandates, some without, some counties with them, some without, that, that has confused Georgia residents. And, uh, and, and it, is, it, it might have had an impact on the economic outlook as, as well. Chuck, then Emma. Um, Bill, I challenge everybody today as they go through their daily life today, look at who's wearing the mask. Look at the people in the grocery stores that have the masks on. As you go into public places, in your workplaces, look and see. I've been doing this for about a week because I've been curious sort of who's still wearing masks and wearing them on a regular basis. Anecdotally, at least down here, I'm seeing more African-Americans wearing masks than white. I mean, it, I don't know what that says. I don't know the political ramifications, but you know, I know a lot of Georgia, particularly in the southern part of the state, a lot of the early outbreaks started in black churches. So, I mean, maybe that speaks to that. But, I mean, I know right now it is a political issue, and it will continue, as Greg just said, to be a political issue, and it's going to be used by both sides as we move into a general. I, you know, we put a request in our newsletter this morning asking if people were going to keep wearing masks uh, in the airport, and we have gotten so many responses. Um, A lot of yes, of course, Um, some absolutely not done with that. And a lot of people who are kind of confused, like, I'm going to bring it, I'm going to put it on, maybe if someone's coughing, if it seems too crowded. But then there's also this dynamic of, but I'm really worried about, I feel bad for the people who are immunocompromised. I feel bad for the people who this really can affect negatively, who are still worried, who can't be vaccinated for children. And and so, I mean, yes, we see the tide the tide has shifted in rules, and, and I think we're all fed up with it in some respects, but there is this awareness of the people who 
who can't be fed up with it yet. So, Raul, um, we learned late last night, um, and it's in the news this morning, that the Biden administration is considering whether they want to appeal this federal judge's ruling. Now, it strikes me that that is going to be a fascinating political decision uh, uh, to make. Uh, You know, you can see that from many different angles. Uh, It's going to infuriate uh, people who uh, are ready to rip their masks off and don't want to go back to wearing them anymore. Is it going to appeal to his to the Biden, to the Democratic liberal base. I'm not even quite sure how that would play out and how they make that calculation on whether to challenge that ruling. But I think another part of this calculation is if you appeal this and you lose, what is the precedent that is set? You know, and I think that is, you know, away from the politics, that's the underlying thing here is if you if you go appeal this and you lose it, what precedent is this set for the CDC for whatever the next pandemic is, whether it's COVID or not? So it, they will have to take the political into consideration. But I think, you know, the um, you know, the, the, the pause and waiting on the appeal kind of hints that there may not be an appeal in the end. Greg. Yeah, I mean, look. In, in some ways, the, the federal judge might have done the Biden administration uh, a, uh, a favor by, by ruling. So it took it out of their hands um, because, um, you know, th- there's been a number of articles and a number of even Democrats saying that at this point, it's sort of a choose your own adventure way of how to handle the pandemic. Um, and some people will choose to continue to wear masks in public places and indoors. And, and But for many people, they're not. As Chuck noted, you know, there there is a... Um, We've seen it in Metro Atlanta for a very long time now. Is uh, an unwillingness, even in the even in the height of the pandemic, to wear a mask anymore, and uh, and, and a lot of people feel like that's behind them. Um, Natalie Mendenhall points out to me that uh, she was home visiting her family in Chicago over the Easter weekend and uh, came back on a plane last night and was apparently one of the few people who continued uh, to wear a mask. So um, we will watch how that unfolds in the days and weeks ahead. And I'm still, Greg, I have to say, I'm just fine. I can't quite get a handle on how important COVID will be in the certainly in the general election and i suppose it's going to depend on where we stand with infection rates come the fall yeah and if there's new variants or if there's uh, if, if or if it's proven that our inoculation rates uh, our inoculation starts to wear off things like that um but you know we're seeing look her uh Rafael warnock's first ad no masks right um stacy abrams ads no masks for the most part um, Republicans are going to use any sort of image of Democrats without masks on as a way to charge them with being hypocrites. We saw that from Stacey Abrams' famous visit to that elementary school not that long ago. Um, but, you know, Democratic candidates are signaling they're ready to move on as well. And they don't want to, unless there's a, you know, a retrenchment, they don't want to focus on this as much. Okay, um, Raul Bali, let's move on to a, a, a race that we have not given much attention to on the show uh, so far, uh, and we really need to uh, start uh, watching it a little bit more closely. And that's uh, Lucy McBath and Carolyn Bordeaux, both running for the Democratic 
nomination. Uh, Bordeaux, of course, the incumbent. McBath moved to the seventh because redistricting made her sixth district a Republican district. So we've now got two incumbents essentially challenging each other. According to roll call, uh, just to put it in a larger uh, context, incumbent on incumbent races this year have uh, have raised a total of $6.5 million just in the first quarter of this year. So there's a lot of money being dumped into those races. McBath reports that she raised 804000 in the first quarter. Bordeaux, $593,000. Um, and it appears that Lucy McBath is getting support from Washington figures that Carolyn Bordeaux hasn't been getting. How is that race unfolding in your uh, viewpoint? I think Lucy McBath, Congresswoman McBath is trying to make, Congresswoman McBath trying to make this kind of a done deal. I think that's the approach she's trying to take. She's also trying to, she's also, you know, bringing in those endorsements of local politicians mm. where you've got uh, Congresswoman Bordeaux saying, look, I've been the person representing most of Gwinnett and Gwinnett's the largest part of this district, you know, making the argument that, you know, I've been representing this area. I was the one who helped flip this area. And and I do want to mention State Representative Donna McLeod, who's also in the race. You know, she's she's she continues to point out that, hey, I'm the person who lives in this district and represents this district. So those are kind of the dynamics you're seeing there. The The other interesting thing there, you know, in, is are people figuring out which district they live in? And I think that's also, you know, as, as somebody who lives in the Brookhaven area, I've got a change in. I'm going from sixth to fourth. You've got people in Gwinnett who are trying to figure out which district they live in. Not only the seventh, there are people who didn't realize that they're in uh, what is the new seventh. So that's part of this, too, of, of figuring out what district do I live in, who's going to be on my ballot, when I show up here in a couple of weeks. Emma? You know, my, my colleague did a story looking nationally at all of the, um, all of the, incumbent, the incumbent races, house races in the midterms, and they're all sort of a microcosmic look at this, these big, bigger issues at play in the two parties, the sort of more extreme wing and a moderate who are being pitted against one another, whether that's a Trump-backed person and someone who voted to certify the 2020 election on the Republican side or in the Democratic side. I mean, we have Lucy McBath, who's known as a more of a progressive for her fierce gun rights advocacy, advocacy uh, or sorry, gun control, excuse me, advocacy. And Carolyn Bordeaux, who is known as a moderate, um, as someone who was a, wasn't afraid to stand up against Biden's infrastructure bill at one point. So this, this tells a, a bigger story, too, about where each party is at when we zoom in on these races. Chuck, uh, it does strike me that, as uh, Emma points out, Lucy McBath always has a very compelling, very focused message. The, the, the very tragic death of her son uh, killed in, in, a, in a gun incident of which he was a total victim. It wasn't as if he was engaged in some way in, in, a, in a gun shootout. Uh, it, it, that's a compelling message and focuses very narrowly, and it strikes me um, really gives her something to say her campaign is about very specifically. Yes? I think that's what you're seeing the congressional camp campaigns. And I can't speak much 
to the Bordeaux Macbeth race because that one's sort of geographically out of my comfort zone. But, you know, I mean, we have Congressman uh, Ferguson, who's being challenged down here, Congressman Bishop, Republican and Democrat, who both have pieces of Muskogee County being challenged. But, you know, where you have an issue like Congressman Matt, Matt Bath has, has, you will play that issue to your advantage the best you can, and particularly one that's as personal as that one. Greg? Yeah, and I want to point out, too, she, she's also, you know, expanding Medicaid, expanding health care access, um, and, and voting rights, a key part of her campaign as well, Congresswoman McBath. Um, but look, this is part of the new reality of, of Georgia's redrawn maps. There might be only one truly competitive general election House district uh, in the state now, and that's the second down where, where Chuck is in Southwest Um So he's got that fun race, but for the rest of us, you know, throughout the rest of Georgia, our only competitive congressional races are going to be in the primaries, not the general elections. And so we're going to have a lot of Democrat on Democrat fighting, a lot of Republican on Republican fighting. We're seeing that in the 10th, we're seeing that in the 7th, we're seeing that uh, on the 6th as well. Um, and we're seeing that to a lesser degree in the 13th district, David Scott's district. Um, so districts like that are facing really tough um, primary challenges. Um, so, so the way to frame it in, in some sense is that, you know, as much as Donald Trump and all that is helping to shape the direction of the Republican, primary, Republican Party in Georgia, um, so are these primaries on the Democratic side, um, because they'll, they'll show you a, a lot of how far left uh, what issues are really resonant to Democratic voters, we're going to find out May 24th on the Democratic side of the ballot. Chuck, quick word before we get to a break. You know, this, the Georgia second will be competitive. It's like two, three-point Democrat lean now. And I talked to Congressman Bishop on uh, Monday, and he's preparing for that. But he is going back to, I've always fought for the farmers. You're really hearing do the things that have kept him in the office for 30 years, and he's the, he's the dean right now of the Georgia congressional delegation. All right, let's get to our final break of the show. I've got a couple more items I'm really looking forward to talking uh, to the panel about after these messages. Raul Bali, you were at the first community meeting, Raul, of uh, 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 residents out in Monroe and Walton County who were worried about what the Rivian plant uh, is going to do in terms of impacting the way they live out there. Uh, tell us a little bit about what you saw in terms of the concerns expressed by the people who were at that meeting. So, Bill, the agenda for Monday's meeting was environmental issues, and there were plenty of environmental issues discussed, you know, uh, water issues, what would happen if there's a fire at the plant, handling hazardous materials like the ones that are used in those vehicles. But underlying the whole meeting is this frustration and this anger that the project was just dropped on the folks of Morgan, Walton, Jasper, Newton counties, um, especially Morgan County. That was where a lot of the, the people who spoke out against it were from because part of the project sits in Morgan County. And, and the people feel like despite the public hearings that, and I heard this so many times, it's a done deal. And, and you, kept, you kept hearing and that these meetings are for show. You heard Governor Kemp's name mentioned a number of times, not in a good light. Uh, 10th congressional candidate Vernon Jones was there. A number of campaigns were there. 
I saw a number of David Perdue stickers on the 70 people who showed up, many to speak against Rivian. And my big takeaway is this. In a May primary where Governor Kemp is, needs every vote to avoid a June runoff, could this be an issue, especially if David Perdue is able to make the argument outside of that area? If it's just Morgan County, that's going to be a, a handful of votes. But if he's able to make that argument outside of the area, and, and I make the same argument when he talks about Buckhead cityhood outside of the Atlanta area. If he's able to expand those issues against Governor Kemp, does he get more votes and enough votes to cause a runoff? So uh, Chuck Williams, yesterday, Sam Olins and Michael Thurman were on the show. And of course, both of them have had a lot of experience in, in running uh, in, in Sam Olin's case. He was Cobb County Commission chair. Michael Thurman continues as the cab chair. Now, Sam Olins made the point that he thinks that that Governor Kemp has done more uh, to encourage economic development than many governors before him. So he made a positive comment about Kemp. He's a Republican. But on the other hand, both he and Thurman, having had experience in dealing with communities and economic development, made it clear they think that the state did not do enough, if anything at all, to bring the community in on how the Rivian decision was being made. You know, I had a fascinating conversation with somebody else who knows something about economic development last week. Congressman Drew Ferguson, his father was with the West Point Development Authority and literally put together the land deal that made the Kia plant possible. <clears throat> Ferguson became the mayor of West Point as Kia was ramping up. And I asked him about Rivian and sort of what was happening. Congress, Congressman Ferguson's take was when West when Kia came into West Point in 2005, West Point was 20 years into the textile gone. It was dying on the vine, and it was just about dead. Kia revived West Point in West Georgia and East Alabama in a way that nothing else could. He said the difference here with Rebian in the outside of Atlanta is the economic times are much better. So you're having a more difficult time selling this. And, you know, Kia was a done deal when Governor Purdue got on that plane and went to Seoul to sign the deal. It was a done deal before the details ever came out. So this isn't the first time there's ever been a huge, massive economic development project that was a done deal. The difference is the economic times in which it's being done. Yeah, and th this is going to be the biggest economic development incentive package in the state's history. It's going to be hundreds of millions of dollars. It's already $125 plus million dollars just in the state budget for the land and other incentives alone, but we're not even talking about tax breaks yet or any other issues. Um, and, and look, I mean, it, it's hard to fathom any sort of state leading state political leader coming out against this. It was at least a few months ago uh, because of the Kia background, because Georgia has long sought auto dealers, right? Uh, uh, sorry, auto manufacturers. Um, big, these huge, giant economic development projects that uh, involve tens of thousands of jobs when they're all said and done with suppliers. Uh, but David Perdue feels like he has an, a message. Um, and his, his strategy is not just the community closely around Rivian, which includes many Democrats who also oppose it. I saw, Emma and I were at the same event, we saw Stacey, people wearing Stacey Abrams blue shirts opposing the Rivian plan as well. Um, but if you draw a sort of 20-mile radius around the Rivian project, that's a lot of conservative Republican voters. Um, 
So you're, you're talking about thousands of thousands of Republican voters there. Um, will it resonate outside those lines? Not really. We're already seeing it, right? I mean, it, it's, at the Trump rally, when Rivian got brought up, there was nary a, even an ovation or applause. It's not that big of a deal to voters in Atlanta or, or beyond. Um, but in that neck of the woods, it, it is continuing to be a, a resonant issue. Uh, and just to follow on that, I mean, the, the calculation is that to the voters that know about it, it matters. And it could be an issue they vote on exclusively, right? To the voters that don't, you know, okay, uh, it's a wash. The other thing I'll point out versus the Kia plant is this time around, we have social media. And so there has been this uh, movement that's been able to grow in that kind of grassroots organic way that maybe, you know, wasn't able to do, wasn't able to happen in the same way uh, in Kia times. Raul? And I just want to, I just, I think there were, the one, the other thing I noticed was there was kind of these, Rivian is a combination of a couple of, of boogeymen that works with voter with, with voters. It's the combination of big tech, big government, and big business. And it's all wrapped up in one. And, and, and Greg's right. You've got a lot of voters there. But I think David Perdue's hope is he can expand that issue outside of that, that 20, 30-mile circle that Greg mentioned. All right. Um, we have come to the end of our time on today's show. I was hoping we'd get to uh, the story about the dramatic drop in auto um, automatic voter registration uh, uh, today. We didn't, so we'll take it up on tomorrow's show and ask the panel what they think is going on there. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, that's it for us for today's edition. Chuck Williams of WRBL, Greg Bluestein, the AJC, Emma Hurt, Axios Atlanta, Raul Bali, W-A-B-E. Thank you all so much for being with us for Political Rewind today. Um, we're back again with another show tomorrow. And you know who's going to be with us? Our great engineer, Jesse Neiswanger, our senior producer, Natalie Mendenhall, our producer, Sam Burmistaws, and, and Sarah Callis, the best intern that any news organization, I guarantee you, has ever had, is back in the political rewind fold after working on lawmakers for the season. And Sarah, we're thrilled you're back with us. So that's it for us for today. Uh, until tomorrow, I'm Bill Nygut. Please, everybody, take care, stay healthy, decide for yourselves what you want to do about wearing masks. See you all tomorrow. <laughs>